I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. Mountain Meadows Massacre to the translation process, I see us wanting to understand the full truth, including polygamy and this and that. And if we're hiding or avoiding things, I see us desiring to understand the full picture, not just the most cynical picture possible and not the most suspicious picture possible, which is like, well, if you want to do that, you can do that, but it's a painful way to live. Hey, welcome back to the Saints Inscripted podcast. We're so happy to uh, do another episode today about faith crisis in season one still. And we have some amazing guests. We have Jacob Hess and Dan Ellsworth, who I really look up to and see as uh, sort of experts in faith crisis. And so thank you, Dan and Jacob, for coming and really excited to have you on. Glad to be here. Thanks, Jacob. And uh, so I kind of want to start the discussion off. Um, You two wrote probably a series of articles. I know you have a few on faith crisis. The one that I was introduced to when I first heard about Jacob and Dan was uh, titled A Mindful Way Through Faith Crisis. Is that the right title? A Mindful Way Through Faith Crisis. And I I thought it was extremely insightful, um, especially as someone who's feels like going through the depths of a faith crisis and sort of an identity crisis to kind of what I took from that. And we'll talk more about it, but to kind of just be okay with doubts, not glorifying them, not seeing them as an ends as an end, but seeing them as sort of a beginning to learning more and becoming more enlightened, if that's a good way to put it. And it's, it's been really tough though, because I feel like I've learned so much from doing this podcast and and meeting all these guests. And on one hand, I'm I feel okay. I know that I I believe that God loves me. I believe that God for, has forgiven me in many things because I've felt it and I've had real spiritual experiences. And the reason why I stay kind of in our church is because of the Book of Mormon because I, I believe so strongly that that's true. And so having another testament of Jesus Christ really helps me to then believe still in Jesus Christ. But for some reason, I still have like this painful feeling, this, uh, this distress deep down inside, and I'm not sure why. And it, it just has to do with, I just have problems with a lot of, a lot of church history, a lot of how the church has operated, how the church currently operates, how leaders lead and and all of that. So anyway, kind of a precursor to our conversation. Is is that pretty good introduction for you guys? <laughs> sure. Sure. So knowing this about me and my sort of, you know, faith crisis or faith wrestle or faith struggle, is this something you guys can work with today <laughs> of course <laughs> awesome i think what i would say 
is first of all, um, you're not alone. Uh, a lot of us have been through what you're going through. Uh, and a lot of us still are going through what you're going through. There are a lot of people in the church going through what you are going through. We need, I, I hope you can believe me deep down in your very soul when I tell you that what you're feeling is not evidence that there might be something wrong with you or that God isn't happy with you or that, you know, nothing along those lines. Uh, what you're feeling is normal. And we, we would do well to just acknowledge that. And, you know, the, the deeper that you can feel that, the better. <laughs> because a lot of times when we're in faith crisis, there is a lot of self-condemnatory language and just kind of worrying about, oh gosh, you know, am I going to hell? Or am I ever going to fit in again? Or am I ever going to be happy in this faith again? Can I be happy in this faith again? Can I believe it again? Um, all of those things are, uh, are normal <laughs> kind of things that go on in our, in our hearts and minds in, in this process. But if you can start down in your core, and if you have to, then just take my word for it right here and now. Just believe that what you are experiencing is normal. It's okay. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean you've sinned. Doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. <laughs> and then we can start from there. Okay. Dan, what do you mean by normal? You've said that a couple times. Because, uh, because I, certainly Jacob would probably say this state he's in is not something that he you know, it's not something he wants to continue normatively into the future. So normal can mean a lot of things. What do you mean? What I mean by that is, uh, so I, having gone through this process and uh, just through other life experiences as well, as well um, I, I'm, convinced just based on what I experienced and, and what a lot of other people have experienced that this is a process of, of development. It's, it's personal development. It's personal growth. It's, we sometimes in the context of faith, when we're in pain, we automatically attribute pain or doubt to sin and that is not necessary, okay? I, you know, I, an example I, I give is a friend of mine, uh, he injured his shoulder years ago and he, he took kind of the walk it off approach. He's like, yeah, you know, my sh shoulder hurts, but I'll just keep going and, and it'll, it'll feel okay. And it started to feel okay and, and over time, uh, he just went about his life and then it started really hurting. And he went to a physical therapist and the physical therapist said, uh, okay, you know, he, he checked him out and he said, we're going to have to actually re-injure your, your shoulder as part of your process of getting better. And he said, that is going to hurt. 
I promise it is going to hurt. <laughs> and you're going to think that I'm mean and you're going to hate me when we do this. <laughs> but we have to do it. And, and he did it. And yeah, my friend said it was this excruciating, miserable experience. But then his therapist taught him some better movements with his arm and his shoulder. And they practiced those and they practiced those. And over time, his shoulder got completely healed. And so, you know, but he, his therapist was wise though. He said, what you're going to be feeling towards me is anger and frustration. <laughs> and you're gonna think that I'm actually hurting you. I'm not, we, we just have to go through this process in order for you to get where you need to go. And so anyway, that's how it worked out. And faith crisis is a lot like that. And pain that comes from doubt or confusion and, and a lack of sense of belonging and, and those kinds of things does not mean that you are bad, right? Doesn't mean that you are a sinner or anything like that. Uh, if you if you view it in the context of development, then you can create space to see it as a growth opportunity. You know. A, anyway, Jacob, can I add to that, Dan? Um, yeah, I agree that um, going to this dark, condemnatory place is really obviously not a good thing. I sometimes feel like America has the opposite problem, though, that any discomfort or any thought or feeling that is challenging, we, we can sometimes go to this ultra validating place like, oh, you know, your feelings of, of discomfort and doubt or this or that or, or sorrow or sense of betrayal um, is, um, we validate so much with big hugs and don't, sh don't feel shame about anything that in a way we, we can over reinforce, I think, the experience. Almost like if a friend comes to you and vents, you know, have you ever had the experience where somebody vents to you? They're just like, blah, 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 Trump, blah, 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 Biden, whatever. And there's a way to validate it so much that you send the message to that person that they're right and that what they're feeling is true and there's no, no scrutiny necessary. I want to suggest, Jacob, that mindfulness is an alternative to that. It says we might feel things strongly, anger, sorrow, fear, doubt, and they may or may not be a reflection of reality or truth or even who we are. It may be that we're just feeling them for lots of reasons. So one of the things that people have found liberating, including people who struggle with depression, is a way to relate to our body and our mind and our heart without taking it so personally, without taking it so literally, like I'm feeling this, therefore fill in the blank, right? Well, who knows? Like th there's a lot of different ways to work with our inner experiences, only one of which is I'm feeling this, therefore, it says this about me and it says this about my faith and it says this about reality. Um, 
maybe not. In fact, the Buddhists and the Eastern cultures, they, their default would be the opposite. They would say, no, this is mental content you're experiencing. And there could be lots of reasons for it. So I'm, I'm pointing to the opposite extreme from Dan. Certainly, we don't want to condemn. But there's something about the overvalidation and the overvalorization. Like in faith crisis conversations today, it seems to me like the default is to say, oh, you have doubts. That's great. That's like a higher form of enlightenment. You must be ahead of the game. <laughs> like <laughs> Saying all these things to try to make somebody feel good, right? But, you know, could we pull that back and just say, from a purely descriptive view, you're just having an experience and how we make sense of it and how you work with it is, is really an adventure. And there are some aspects of feelings that may not be true or right or good to follow or validate. So certainly people with depression don't want to just validate the feelings. They want to find a way through them. I want to live with this forever. So slight pushback, but I know I can press Dan a little bit. We have a relationship where we can grapple. Yeah, no, I, so what, what Jacob just said is so critically important. So now imagine if my friend went to his, his physical therapist and the physical therapist just sat down with him and said, I validate your hurting shoulder your hurting shoulder hurts and I feel that with you. And it's and normal. Just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to feel that with you and I love you and, you know, bless you and your hurt shoulder. I'm here. Well, it's okay. You. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So my friend would have felt very emotionally satisfied if he had had somebody say that to him, he would have felt emotionally comforted. Right but he still has a bad shoulder. Now, you know, the way we, uh, we approach faith crisis a lot of times along these lines is we validate like that. We say, oh, you are, you're hurting. I love you. Um, now we need to find out who hurt you and say horrible things about them and accuse them. And we need to just dump accusations <laughs> in your lap constantly so that you feel like a victim and you know exactly who hurt your shoulder and who didn't listen to you when you were in pain. And so you can hate those people. And, you know, so there is, like Jacob said, there is a problem of over-validation or just being stuck with validation, right? But then there's also this this blame and shame culture that we have in America <laughs> where it's like, I'm hurting, therefore somebody else needs to hurt. And so if you love me, you'll help me find who needs to hurt so I can mm -hmm. make them hurt somehow, or just, you know, replay these narratives of victimhood in my head about mm. these horrible people who didn't tell me about my shoulder. Right. Yeah. So Anyway, well said, Dan. Let's let's pause and get Jacob's thoughts on any of this. No, I I have definitely been that person. I feel like with others, possibly over validating. <laughs> and it's it's really awesome to hear you guys talk about this because 
it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And I feel like I've been given a great support system that I haven't been over-validated or condemned, but I feel like I haven't got anything in the middle, which you said is kind of a mindful approach to a faith crisis. And so I wonder if we can start there. <laughs> if, if we can start to kind of unpack, you know, what does it mean to start to be in the middle of those high, you know, overvalue, overvalidation or self-condemnation? And how do we begin to mindfully approach this? So we could connect everything we've said to your great question. Um, I'm starting where our article starts, actually. The inclination when we feel discomfort of any kind, this is not just faith crisis discomfort, but depression, anxiety, fear, is to do one of two things, to push it away, shove it down in the cellar, as Thomas McConkie says, or to just sort of resign ourselves to it, to go with it, to embrace it. And, and, and you could say those are the two extremes we've been talking about, right? The middle path is to do neither of those in a, and be very conscious that you are not just avoiding, pushing it away. They call it aversion in the tradition. Neither are you just grabbing onto it and over embracing it. You're sitting in the middle of those two in a place of agency, space, observation, where, um, where you are feeling what you're feeling, you're seeing what you're seeing, but you're not just possessed by it. You're experiencing it more like a third person observer in your life. You know, near death experiences, how um, somebody will leave their body <laughs> and then see themselves. It's a bit like that, except instead of leaving your body, you're actually going deeper than your body into your spirit. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn says, learning to rest in a place deeper than your feelings, deeper than your thoughts, deeper than your physical sensations, and they call it awareness in Buddhism. We would call it spirit in Christianity. Learning to rest in a place where we can actually know that we're feeling something and notice that we're having certain thoughts, but again, not taking it so personally, not like, like, as you said, before we got going, you know, you have a, you hear something about history, right? Or you hear an argument about what leadership is doing instead of like, oh no, now I see this. Now I know the truth. A mindful approach is sort of like, um, well, that is a, that's a really concerning argument or that, that thought is really painful to me. Now, whether or not that thought is true is a whole nother question. Whether or not you're going to embrace that thought as reality is a whole nother question. This allows you to watch the thought, observe the feeling, rather than just being the feeling and automatically adopting the thought. If I could use one more comparison, I'm going to shut up. With depression, this is liberation. When somebody starts to say, okay, all these thoughts about how terrible I am and how I'm worthless and how I should kill myself. I mean, those thoughts come to people with depression. You can start to push back and see them as the propaganda 
of depression, then those thoughts are not you. They're just thoughts and they're hitting you right now for, for lots of reasons. If you lose a lot of sleep, you can be more vulnerable to those thoughts. If you're in an abusive relationship, you know, lots of reasons these weird thoughts can hit us. But what is the propaganda of faith crisis? What are those thoughts? And how many of them are in fact true or distortions of reality? And maybe some of them are. But the cool thing is you can judge for yourself. Like uh, you don't have to be so embroiled in them. You just start to be a little more self-critical in the right sense of like, okay, here are some thoughts. Here are some feelings. And I'm going to actually bring them into prayer. And I'm going to counsel with God about these feelings and about these thoughts rather than just, oh no, you know, I'll pause there. Dan? What Jacob said is, is exactly right. And when we talk about the propaganda of faith crisis, there really is, there are narratives about faith and cognition that cause us a lot of turmoil. And we would do well to just see them and you know, almost like they're just sitting in the room with us. They don't, they're not strangling us. They're not, you know, pinning us down. They're just sitting there in the room with us. One of these narratives is if you can't answer accusations toward the church and its leaders, then the accusations are true. Okay, that's a narrative. There are a lot of people who firmly believe that. Uh, and you, and because they firmly believe it, they propagate this narrative and a lot of people are consumed by it and they adopt it. It's actually just not even remotely true. And I, you know, an example that I gave with some friends of mine is I worked for an organization where, uh, there was a woman who was an executive in the organization and she, she was uh, always in trouble. Okay. <laughs> People were always filing human resources complaints about her. Um, she canceled a major initiative that, that had employed a lot of people. And um, she made a lot of enemies and just very much a problem in the organization. And there's another lady though, who was kind of the opposite. Like she had you know, kind of a, a very similar set of circumstances. And uh, she actually had some very, she, she really won the loyalty of a lot of people. Um, she was faced with a, 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 a system that they were building that was problematic, but she really thought through it and, and made a, a really more thoughtful decision about what to do. And um and she was promoted and she, you know, and I, I tell this story and I, I, I say, this is the same woman that I'm talking about. Okay. This is an organization that I worked in that has 40,000 or more employees. And this woman is an executive at that organization and people who have interacted with her have formulated two very different narratives about her. There are people who have made her into a devil <laughs> and there are other people who say she has been amazing. She has been so helpful, so effective. She's tough, 
um, sometimes loses her temper, but no more than any of the rest of us, you know, and, but because she's so visible, she's an executive, um, there's a lot that is said about her that is not said about people who are not executives. And so I, over the years, I observed like these two completely different narratives about her. And these are people saying things about her that are true, right? But some of the people say she was wonderful and others think she was a devil, think she was horrible. Um, and so we do have choices. We can step back and say, what am I doing? I'm looking at narratives that people have formulated. Okay, I'm not looking at the facts about this lady. When somebody tells me about her, they're telling me a narrative. They constructed that narrative somehow. And I don't need to be, that narrative doesn't need to be the one that I adopt. It's a narrative. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong, it's a narrative. And so to be able to say that about narratives about church leaders, for example, or these just wildly different contradictory theories about how the Book of Mormon came around, right? They're just theories. They really are just theories and they can't all be true by the way. <laughs> um, so what Jacob said is right, to be able to step back and just identify what those things are and not allow them to possess us and consume us what it does is it really creates space in our hearts and minds to explore options and, and be aware of new possibilities and actually let God guide us. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, acknowledging this ambiguity. Because for me, going through this doubt before having this mindful approach, I wanted to get the answers. I wanted to someday in X amount of days be reconciled to the church or something. <laughs> and that's such a silly way. I was like, okay, you know what? If the Lord sees my effort, he is going to reveal all things to me. And, and maybe that's somewhat true, but maybe more of an eternal aspect rather than, you know what, Lord, in three months, I want you to reveal everything to me. So maybe you guys can talk about that a little bit, kind of the ability to acknowledge ambiguity, um, kind of that's sort of the beginning, or maybe I'll let you talk about that. And also, you know, how complexity um, can help us grow. And rather than accepting that complexity as an end or, or a state of being, rather than having that kind of replace the restoration, replace the restoration truths, replace, you know, my testimony, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I would say thank you for trusting us to hear all this and trusting so many. Absolutely. I would say uh, you can find reconciliation and answers. Um, and I, I think, that may be where Dan and I part ways with others who talk about mindfulness and faith crisis is that there, there can sometimes be a glorification of doubt as a higher level of enlightenment. And if you see the complexity, the ambiguity, you're really in the sweet spot. But 
insight, insight meditation, as it's called, and most of the research in meditation is about insight meditation. Insight meditation is called insight meditation because insight comes in the meditation. You see more, you see more clearly. As Latter-day Saints, we could call it revelatory meditation. So in a way, what we're talking about is creating conditions where you can see more clearly beyond what you are currently seeing. And if we, if we really believe in eternal progression, that means forever learning, right? Forever, constantly unfolding. And the only way that stops is if we somehow get constipated in our learning. Uh, in Chinese medicine, the root of all disease is constipation. It's like, as long as things are flowing, you know, Joseph says, how long can rolling waters remain impure? What power can stay the heavens? Like as, as uh, it'd be easier to stop the Missouri, reach out and stop it with your arm than to stop God from pouring down on us truth. So I actually find it admirable that your impulse was to do as President Nelson has asked and look at different areas of your life that could be adjusted. I find that to be wise as long as it's doesn't turn into the condemnatory thing. I think in the world's perspective, repentance is synonymous with um, condemn, condemnation, but not in the gospel sense. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to help us find redemption. And I think sometimes in my experience, Jacob, sin has been weighing on me. And there are things in my life I've had to look at. So what I see you doing really powerfully is... Um, looking at your emotional mental experience as a clue, kind of a signal into different things to try. If I could say one more thing. Um, one thing that Dan and I are arguing and that this tradition would suggest, I think, is, is calling caution about the hard edges. And you've already done this eloquently, Jacob. Hard edges like it's either a fraud or it's all true and you, you accept it without question. Like that's a pretty tough dichotomy. And I know we sometimes talk about that way. We talk that way, like it's either true, it's not, you know, it's either God. There are positive ways to talk that way, but there's really negative ways where there's no space to actually observe from a calm contemplative place. So if I could give one example Years ago, I started hearing this accusation that the church was just lying. The church had been lying to people about its history, right? Now, for many of us, that was really unsettling to hear, like, oh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been accused of being a liar. It's like, it's pretty aggressive and it's pretty damning. So I know people in my own life who, who were um, seized upon by that and and they embraced that narrative as true. And it rattled their world. It shook their foundation. And some of them, with tears in their eyes, headed for the door, right? I did not. I sat with that. I felt it. And I felt the gravity of it. And I'll tell you what came up in my own experience sitting with that. I started to think about uh, American history and how there were also things that I didn't hear in my American history class that I later found out that the American government had, had done. 
Does that mean my American history teacher was lying to me? Was she like in on the lie? Was the whole, you know, that the, the tradition in American history that we focus on the positive, is that, does that just mean the whole thing is a lie? That was the first thing, first insight that came up. And part of me is like, well, no, it just means historians were focusing on the positive and they were, you know, they're not going to talk about our country toppling dictatorship in Latin America and, you know, <laughs> and, and things they should have talked about. But in that tradition of history, we were focused more in, in, in this. And then I re- the other insight that came is my grandfathers both served in the war. When they came back from the war, I don't know about your grandfathers, but mine didn't talk about the really horrific things. Why? Was it because they were lying to me? You know, they were not being honest with me. No. In that generation, um, this is how we handled traumatic things and messy things and abuse. And is it okay? No, it's not something we want to continue. We know, as you're demonstrating, Jacob, there's something of value about sharing and talking and going there, right? But for different reasons, um, the previous generation didn't always do that. Not because they were weak or dishonest or unenlightened like our generation. In fact, it's fair to say we've gone to become the Maury Povich talk talk show generation. We don't hide anything. (laughs) We go on the talk shows and talk about the really nasty things that happen in our family. We've gone to this completely other extreme. And then we look at previous generations and we see them through our lens in this ethnocentric way and we condemn them for not telling history like they should have, right? So these, I'm saying, these are some of the things that came up for me. When I heard those accusations that were very unsettling, I just started to feel like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there a way that there's a certain kind of history that we've been hearing and now we're improving it? And they did their best. They had their way of doing history and we have improved it. We are now grappling with more difficult things. And I think our our grandparents' generation would be proud of us taking that step. As long as we don't just condemn them all as liars. Does that make sense? So I'm just illustrating that this, this space that Dan and I are advocating for is not a space of relativism. It's not a space of, well, who knows? Everybody just tells stories. No, it's a space of agency where you can observe what's going on in your body, in your mind, in your heart, and not have to feel compelled to be driven to do that or that. You better stay in the church and you better not have any doubts or you can't stay in this church. If you have integrity with yourself, Jacob, you got to leave. You're like, what in goodness? You know, that's not a healthy atmosphere. And even when I had uh, breakfast with John DeLynn, we agreed about this. I have major disagreements with John DeLynn. But what I heard from him is he didn't want people to feel pressured and forced either. I think this can be a space of common ground between critics and believers to say people need sacred space to really search with their God to what is right and true. And and in my experience, truth gradually is unfolded line upon line, and it might take years, but it's not, this is not signing up to resign yourself to a lifetime of grappling with complexity endlessly, you know, and being one of those people that just can't, no, no, I, I think it just, 
always can unfold. I want to ask your response to that, Jacob, before Dan adds something. Just I'm curious how that landed, how that felt. No, that felt really good, I think. I, uh, that helps so much, especially just knowing that and hearing that and feeling that that is right and true because I've felt extremely similar to feelings that you and maybe some of you, the friends that may have reacted a little differently than you in, you know, wanting to raise the sirens and freak out because, oh yeah, my perception was when beginning this process was, feels like the church has been lying. It feels like they're purposely hiding things to deceive it's just feelings. I didn't go out and start telling that to people and really believing that, but that was definitely a thought process and feeling. So it's really great to hear you talk about that and give some comparisons about your grandparents and others that it's not necessarily they're hiding it or lying to us, but now we can look at it. Okay. We're doing a better job at, at, everyone learning the history and unfolding the history and learning. And, and, and so thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. So I, I would add, so imagine I'm disillusioned with the church. Okay. And I'm one of these guys who spends all day on YouTube and, and, you know, some of these podcasts where they just dump like a thousand accusations on you at a time. And, and you're always overwhelmed. And I become an accuser of the church. You know, if somebody says, well, gosh, why are you, why, why'd you lose your faith? Well, and then I, I, I can email them 5,000 pages of accusations, right? <laughs> there's a lot of people like that. So pretend I'm one of those people now, okay? Now, pretend that my friend Jacob here has a magic wand and he says, Dan, I'm going to touch you with this magic wand and you are not going to be able to voice anything that is not in a spirit of generosity. Okay. You're not going to be able to voice accusations anymore. Uh, if I'm the kind of person who has been consumed with that culture and just, you know, constantly feeling validated in my hurt and my grievances and my victimhood, for a year or two years or three years or four years. And this is my crowd and all we do is accuse and validate each other. And then Jacob comes along and ding, he, he casts a spell and all of a sudden I, I can't do that anymore. If I try to type an accusation, my fingers freeze. If I try to voice one, nothing comes out, okay? <laughs> what would I do, okay? What would I do as a human being instead? Could I live? Could I be happy? Could I be at peace without condemning and accusing other people? And I want to make sure I understand the thought experiment. So nothing comes out unless it's in the spirit of generosity, right? right. You're not like stricken with being dumb. Right, right. <laughs> I, if a... I try to voice an accusation, I can't. Okay. Right? What would I do? Would I be able to feel whole as a person? Would I be able to feel happy if I'm not able to compulsively accuse generations before church leaders, past and present, the people around me at church? 
what if I'm only able to speak in a voice of generosity and kindness and charity towards them? We, there are forces pulling at you, Jacob, who want you to be consumed in this tornado of constant accusation and believing the worst about people around you, about church leaders and, and, you know, prophets and, and um, what I hope is, you know, and, and Jacob has done a good job of explaining this is that you can kind of step back and almost look over your, your own shoulder and, and see Jacob there looking at, you know, these two opposing ways of doing things. I, I really, there are paths in front of me. And, and I know some actually good people who have taken the accusatory and negative path, but I also know some people who have taken the path of charity and generosity. And here's me looking at these two paths, you know, and if you can just kind of sit with that image and think about it. And, and I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. The fact that here are these, these ways that you can go. All right. And whichever way you go, you're not going to go that way perfectly. You already know that because you're a human being, but you know, you're, you, have the agency to to really make that choice. You're not forced one way or another. Can I riff off one thing you said before we hear Jacob's response? Yeah. Um, this is not an invitation to have any less integrity with the truth, the full truth, nothing but the truth. I, I um, Hal Boyd is someone we work with a lot and Hal said in another conversation recently that he's, he's um, confused a little bit at why in the, the larger conversation about the church, but not just the church, this happens in politics, you see people taking the least generous stance possible and the most cynical version possible of a historical figure or of a current figure, right? This is happening in our current campaign. I mean, these are on display in our election. But from a, from, from a purely perspective of the truth, it doesn't seem to be a great path to understanding truth if you adopt the most cynical telling possible of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or even of uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Like, in my experience, human beings are complex, right? You've illustrated that in the, in the wrestle you're experiencing as a as a faithful man, could it be that Brigham was complex and Joseph and Joe <laughs> and Donald and that, that none of them are the spawn of Satan? I mean, like sometimes you hear this torrent of accusations it's like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize what a criminal. So what I'm arguing is if we're really about the whole truth, we ought to have little um, red flags going up with that sort of rhetoric about anyone. And I mean, like in the political campaign, I, I can't abide it when I hear that. It doesn't feel truthful. I want to know the full truth. And I want to say, I hear in our faith, a commitment to that full truth. 
Mountain Meadows Massacre to the translation process, I see us wanting to understand the full truth, including polygamy and this and that. And if we're hiding or avoiding things, I see us desiring to understand the full picture, not just the most cynical picture possible and not the most suspicious picture possible, which is like, well, if you want to do that, you can do that, but it's a painful way to live. You know, uh, you know, if you, if you adopt a suspicious story of your spouse, good luck with your marriage. If you start to kind of assume the worst about your spouse. And so for the sake of truth, I don't, be- I don't believe that about anything, not in politics, not about religion, not about my wife. And when I do, I suffer. So this is the kind of like awareness we can just kind of notice when we go there because we all go there. It's not just you, Jacob. I go there with my marriage. We fall into it with our politics and it's, it's not a happy, healthy or truthful place. Sorry. Jacob, set us right again. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most powerful impacts or one of the things that you said in in that article that I read, and then what you've kind of said today was we can't ever prove anything for certainty. We And we shouldn't go to that extreme either. We shouldn't go to the extreme of either bad or good or validating or self-condemnation. And it was so cool to read to sort of just have that complexity be a sort of a beginning, at least for me, to, to start to have this process of, of learning more and not just accepting the complexity and ending it there. But understanding that this is difficult and that the Lord wants us to choose and to, to follow him. And, and I feel like I just love the restored gospel so much. And I think there's so much that's beautiful about it. And I hear negative things and negative, and they affect me um, somewhat because I'm kind of going through this, but there's just some core beliefs in the restored gospel that are so beautiful to me. And so I'm, I'm kind of in the perspective of, I want to get out of this faith crisis. I want to stay in the church so bad because of what I believe in the restored gospel. And so maybe we can end with that and maybe hear your guys' thoughts on um, not being able to prove everything, probably right or wrong, but to have but to have kind of the Lord with us and him allowing us to choose our path forward. Beautiful. The expectation that we have to or we're supposed to be able to prove it all, you know, with scientific studies for every thing we guiding our life is probably one of those stories we should pay attention to. I think you spoke powerfully to it, Jacob. I think what's coming up for me is this might sound what Dan and I are saying is sort of this abstract thing that's different than what you hear at church. It's, it's really not. What we're describing is, is something we can practice like moment by moment. For instance, when we kneel down to pray, rather than just blurting into some words in, in the Power Stillness book that we wrote, um, we talk about not speaking and just noticing what's going on in your body, in your heart, in your mind, and taking a period of silence before we say anything. 
as a practice when we can um, and not, not as a technique, as a way to cultivate space so that we can sit with the whole picture, the doubt and the hope, the pain and the sweetness, the positive memories and the, the bitterness. And what I love about mindfulness is it gives us a little bit of encouragement in how to sit with the whole thing. That we don't have to prematurely and arbitrarily kind of force ourselves to only feel the good things or force ourselves to not feel the uncomfortable things. We can hold them both. And, and not alone on a misty mountaintop in China, we can hold them before our God in the practice of prayer and slow scriptures and a Sabbath day where we're not just doing stuff, but we make time to just sit. I went on a 10-day silent uh, retreat once, and I sat with myself for 10 days in silence. And I'm telling you, I came out a new creature. And I came home, and I, and I, I told my wife, we've got to find a way to do this. And she told me, you're never going to do that again, because she was home for 10 days <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> so we decided to make the Sabbath a retreat. And I mean, like, what would it mean to have a whole day of just being with ourselves before our God and really facing this stuff, really like observing it and like noticing it. And my experience, Jacob, and this, and I want Jake, I want Dan to have time is when I do that, things shift, not because I'm trying to make them shift, but because it's in the nature of our experience to continue to change and grow, especially when I'm opening myself to God. And then I'll feel things, I'll notice things, and I'll write things down. So this is what President Nelson has been talking about, revelation as a practice. But how and how do we cultivate conditions for it? That's some of what we're saying. Sorry, I'm done. Dan, final word. We could probably go for five more hours. We just <laughs> we love this stuff. Oh, spare us. Spare Jacob. No, I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, we don't have access to the past, Jacob. We don't, we can't flip a switch and go back in time and see the Kirtland Temple dedication and have those things in person. Um, we, we can't do that and verify with certainty all of these narratives. What we do have fully, completely is right now. We have the present. We can live right here in the moment. Um, we don't have to, I, I love what Jacob just said, you know, we can, we don't have to, to react and just feel, um, compelled all the time. And, and I know that there, are, there are a lot of voices saying various things and, and I'll, I'll close with an experience and I hope I have enough time to share it, but. I was, when I was really struggling with my faith, there was a particular book that I read and it was written by somebody who's not a member of the church and, and it really rattled me. Okay. It really affected, there was a, a particular chapter and a few pages that really rattled me and, and made me really struggle to believe in the scriptures. Okay. When I read that book, I had checked it out of the University of Virginia library. Okay. And when I read it, I had the flu. 
So if I didn't have the flu, my reaction would have been, oh, I just read something that hurt my faith. I need to go fix that. And I would have gone right back to the University of Virginia library. And I would have pulled a bunch of books and, and I would have reacted, 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 right? And uh, just out of pain, out of frustration. And, but I had the flu, so I couldn't do that. So I basically just laid there for a couple of days with the flu. <laughs> and the intensity of that feeling passed. And I took that book back to the library when I, um, when I was done with the flu. And that, was, that happened in December. In April, I was in that library and I was just kind of strolling through some of the bookshelves and I had a prompting to turn and look at some books and I did. And there was a collection of books there and, and I saw one that seemed like it might be related to that problem I had back in December. And I pulled that book off the shelf and I opened it. And the page I opened it to was a point by point rebuttal of that thing that had bothered me in December. I mean, like exactly point by point, a thorough rebuttal of what that scholar had said. Wow. And I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> but there's a message there, like, you know, I, I just, I had, I felt this message like, hey, Dan, this is between you and me. You know, it's, it's like God telling me, hey, you don't have to react immediately. There are voices telling you that if you don't have an answer right now, then this is wrong. Let this be between you and me. And it's going to take time and we'll work through it. But you don't always have to be in this frenzy of reacting to things around you, Right. So had you had you run back to the library, you might not have had that experience, right? I probably would have just had frustration, to mm -hmm. be honest. <laughs> and so there's a message there. You have time. You really do have a lot of time to work through these things and develop. And it's it's actually there will come a point where you'll notice I'm having more good days than bad days. And then way more good days than bad days. And then almost all good days, only an occasionally a bad day. But there's a lot of patience and listening and kind of allowing things to unfold and a lot of trust in the process. Thank you, Jacob and Dan, for taking the time today. I, I feel like I have been given such great tools today to be still navigate this because like I said earlier, I still really do believe in a lot of the things in the, in, in the restoration and thank you for what you've said. It's going to help me keep going in a positive faith-based way, which is the way I want to go. So thank you again. I, I've said thank you like a million times, but I'm, I'm just so, so, so grateful for the time that you took and the knowledge that you've shared and the insight and the faith that you've shared. So thank you both. You're welcome. If Jacob, if you would uh, include a link to the mindful way through faith crisis article and include our emails, we'd love to hear from people too. If you want to like um, talk about it or this is deep in our hearts. We're not getting paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is, something we'd love to hear people's thoughts on too okay yeah and, and i guess the final thing i would say jacob is we love you okay 
you can do this. You, I promise you can do this, okay? Thank you. I love you too as well. Thank you so much. And yes, yeah, I do want to make sure we plug that, a mindful way through faith crisis. So uh, be sure to read that. If you're going through a faith crisis or any struggles with doubts or anything, this is such a great way because it, it helps you understand that you don't have to go to either extreme you can go through the middle in a mindful way and approach. And so if this resonated with you, comment below. And if you have any other questions or concerns, also comment below. And feel free to DM Saints Unscripted on Instagram or feel free to DM me. And I would love to hear what you're, what you're thinking, your thoughts. And because our goal in making these podcasts is to make content that you love, that that will help you, that will resonate with you. And especially this season in faith crisis, I'm kind of taking you along the journey with me because I'm going through this and I'm trying my best to be real and authentic and transparent with you guys. And to be real and authentic and transparent, I do have to say that what Jacob and Dan made a lot of sense to me, that I'm going to start approaching this faith crisis in a mindful way as they described and also how they described it in their article. So please check out their article and I'll link that down in the description. So thank you for watching. Subscribe to Saints Unscripted so you don't miss any of the videos because we release one of these podcasts every Sunday here on YouTube and also wherever you find your podcasts. And we're so grateful for tuning in. So we'll see you next time. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.